Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis, aka crumbly joints. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing leeches, honeybees, and snake oil. What supplement can I take for my joint pain? Many people with osteoarthritis have concerns about safety and efficacy of commonly used medications, including paracetamol and anti-inflammatories. Potentially as a consequence, many people turn to other alternatives to conventional medicine. In a recent survey, up to 70% of people living with osteoarthritis were reported to be trying some form of complementary or alternative medicine for their osteoarthritis. The most common products were fish oil, glucosamine, vitamin C, chondroitin, and herbal medicines. It's a hugely controversial area with vast discrepancies between what is recommended by doctors, international recommendations and guidelines, and ultimately what people with osteoarthritis take. It's critical, however, that people with osteoarthritis be as informed as possible about the efficacy, safety, and other aspects of use of over-the-counter supplements for osteoarthritis. And the purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to unpack this topic. We're joined by none other than Xiao Lu and Andrew McLaughlin. And Xiao Lu is a doctor, a PhD candidate in the rheumatology department at the Institute of Bone and Joint Research. And her expertise includes systematic reviews, meta-analyses, and the diagnosis and treatment of musculoskeletal problems, with a primary focus on evidence-based use of supplements for osteoarthritis. And Professor Andrew McLaughlin is the head of school and dean of pharmacy in the Sydney Pharmacy School and a member of the Order of Australia. 
is a pharmacist, academic, and researcher experienced in clinical and experimental pharmacology and research on the quality use of medicines. Welcome to you both. Thank you for coming along. Thanks, David. Thank you. It's great to have you here. It's a very interesting area, as I mentioned in the preamble, very controversial, but hopefully something that will shed a lot of light on by the end of this episode. But before we get into that, I'm just going to try and learn a little bit more about both of you. So, Andrew, if you could describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Five words would be, I am not George Clooney. I can see that. As you mentioned, pharmacist, academic, researcher, teacher, bad dancer. I'll add those in. Didn't know about the bad dancing, but I'm sure that's really important information for us all to have. But Shao, can you tell me a little bit more about what you do? So I'm doing a research project regarding evidence-based use of supplements for treating osteoarthritis, particularly for hand osteoarthritis. And Andrew, when you're not doing your day job as a, as a dancing pharmacist, <laughs> what is it that you like to do? I'm uh, lucky enough to have uh, twin boys at home. So there's always a bit of uh, physical activity of some sort. It could be cricket in the backyard. But actually, the main thing Sam, my wife, and I like to do is go kayaking and uh, bushwalking. So that's our, our weekend activities. Fantastic. Not that I necessarily want everybody to know this, but where do you kayak? All around Sydney, actually. I mean, we're blessed to have so many uh, fantastic waterways around Sydney. Pitwater, Middle Harbour would be my favourite spots to paddle. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a great way to see the city. And as you say, we're incredibly lucky where we live. Mm. Um, and I live in the east and love getting in my kayak from there as well. Yeah, good. Shao, what is a dietary supplement? Dietary supplements are products intended to supplement the diet. A dietary supplement contains one or more ingredients. It is usually presented as a capsule, tablet or liquid, which is taken orally. Superb. Thank you. Um, Andrew, there are lots and lots of different supplements that people use, um, but the, I guess the common ones that most people describe that they're using for their osteoarthritis are glucosamine, chondroitin, and fish oil. Is there good evidence to support or refute the efficacy of those products? Yeah, thanks, David. I think as uh, Shaz pointed out, uh, if you're a person living with uh, musculoskeletal problems and, and particularly arthritis, osteoarthritis, then actually there's a wealth of information on the internet, in magazines, on the radio, friends and family that recommend different types of supplements. And it can be very confusing. So you've asked me about three of the more common ones uh, and also about good evidence to decide if they work. So we're interested to know, do they help? Uh, and I'm sure we'll also talk about, are they harmful? But when it comes to evidence about whether they work, uh, this is an area where I know yourself and Xiao have been involved in too, where we look at evidence from clinical trials, from published studies, that try and objectively tell us whether or not these medicines help. Now, for the people listening, I'm sure they think of glucosamine. They may, many of them may be taking it, often in combination with chondroitin, the other supplement you mentioned. And the, the comment here is that some people would uh, definitely say, I feel they help me. Other people would say, I'm not sure. But when we truly put it to a test, the evidence is pretty mixed. And really, they suggest that there's some weak benefit, particularly in managing pain, uh, and maybe having some other benefits. But it's not strong evidence. 
And really, on balance, we'd probably say we're uncertain about whether these medicines actually help. Fish oil is, is also an area where a lot of studies have been written and a lot of advertising has been invested, which is put out there for people living with osteoarthritis. And uh, typically what we'd say is that there's inconclusive evidence around fish oil. It's, it's murky a little bit by the fact that oils ain't oils. and There's all sorts of different types of formulations of uh, people would know about the idea of omega-3 uh, fatty acids and their important role in this. There's other types of fish oil that people have known about for a long time, like cod liver oil. So on balance, though, uh, the evidence would point for each of these, glucosamine, chondroitin, and fish oil, to either say the evidence is inconclusive or relatively weak. And by that, I mean that there's a small effect. Fantastic. That's really, really valuable information. And as you say, there's lots of people out there that take it that probably don't necessarily know about what the evidence right. suggests. As you suggest, a lot of that work comes from trials where those products are being compared against a uh, placebo or a sugar pill, uh, just a comparator that potentially is inert or doesn't contain an active substance. Now, as you suggested, some of them have a small potential effect over and above placebo, but by and large, most of the effect is matched by the placebo. Is a placebo something that we should be advocating for and maximizing? Well, this is a pretty controversial area, David. And uh, importantly, when people hear the word placebo, they're thinking about something that's inactive. And actually, placebo as a treatment has a really important place in the testing of medicine. So as we said, we, we talk about clinical trials. These trials tell us an important question. Does this medicine work? And in order to make a fair comparison, we have to compare it to something that looks and feels and often tastes just like the medicine that we're trying to actually investigate. And we know where uh, people have uh, painful conditions, particularly chronic painful conditions. Any effort that you might make to try and improve that condition helps you deal with that pain. So a placebo can actually, uh, in some people who take it, have quite a powerful effect on improving their health and well-being, and more importantly, managing their pain and improving their function. Is there a place for the use of a placebo in medicine though? I, I suppose my take on that is that there's an ethical dimension to this as well. Really what a placebo is doing is tricking someone. It's tricking them into thinking they're getting an active treatment. And there's a lot written about this and a lot, a lot of debate. I suppose my own sense is that there's broader ethical issues in saying to someone, uh, well, I'm giving you a treatment which we know to be inactive. So while uh, many countries around the world and other researchers around the world have actively said, well, we know a placebo is quite harmless, but it could, it could trick people into thinking it's helping them, we should use it. I think there's broader issues there about respecting a person's autonomy and also you know, being very open about the treatments we're using. When we talk about this idea of shared decision-making these days, it's not about what I as a pharmacist might dispense for you or David, you might prescribe and Chow might give them. It's actually about uh, having an open conversation about, you know, what's the best treatment for you and how might we deliver that effectively? Yeah, and exactly. And that's, that's really the point of the podcast is to try to provide some people with some balanced information. And in this particular context, both about efficacy, about the fact that much of the effect of these products really is made up of a placebo effect, uh, which again, as you suggested, should not necessarily be denigrated, but should that be the sole thing that these people do? Probably not. But separate from that, obviously, a lot of treatment decisions are based both around hopefully maximizing the efficacy of the product, but also balancing that against potential risks. 
these products are, I guess, used by a lot of people because they think they're safe. Are there potential harms associated with the use of glucosamine, chondroitin, fish oil? Yeah, so every medicine carries the risk of potential harmful effects. And there's a great quote that came from the doctor that set up the safety monitoring system in the UK. And he said, show me a medicine with no side effects and I'll show you a medicine with no effects. And it's a, it's a subtle point, but every medicine, if it has the potential to provide benefit, also carries the risk of potential harm. So we should always be weighing up our understanding of whether a medicine can help someone and also whether it's suitable for an individual and also whether it might be potentially harmful. And if we look at glucosamine, chondroitin and fish oil, it's true to say compared to other conventional pharmaceutical products, these medicines carry a much lower risk of harmful effects. But that's not to say that they have no harmful effects. So for example, glucosamine has been associated with a higher risk of allergy, particularly people who might have a seafood allergy because glucosamine itself, the ingredient in that medicine can be isolated and extracted from the shells of shellfish or chemically synthesized. But it seems that the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the, the regulatory body in Australia that oversees medis, medication safety, they have identified quite a number of cases of allergy. And also some of these medicines, including glucosamine, can interact with other medicines you might be taking. And that's why it's always good to talk to your pharmacist or your doctor about using a supplement because it's good to know whether it's good, it works out for you, but also whether it might interact. The other question, so fish oil we know can lead to gastrointestinal problems. By that, I mean things like nausea and tummy upset. There's been quite an investigation into fish oil to see whether it affects the likelihood of whether it might increase your risk of bleeding. We know that fish oil and certainly some of the active components of fish oil can affect platelet function. Platelets are those uh, part of your blood which has been associated with clotting and, and bleeding risk. Extensive studies and reviews have really shown, though, that this is not a major risk factor uh, at this stage. So that reminds us that there's a very careful scrutiny of the possible harmful effects of all these medicines and that it's a moving, a moving feast, if you know what I mean, because we're trying to understand more about both the benefit, do they help, but also do they harm. That's really very helpful. And I think, you know, when, when a person's considering taking one of these, I think it's really important to factor in those elements in terms yeah. of efficacy. So their, their benefits in terms of pain, function, their potential for harm, but also their potential cost um, and yes. the opportunity cost that they may have when you're not thinking about another treatment. That's right, because they can be, uh, can be quite expensive and particularly expensive if they're not providing any benefit. Yeah. So, Shao, you've done a lot of work uh, looking specifically at supplements for osteoarthritis. Um, and I guess more generally, ones may work and which ones don't. But are there any supplements and complementary medicines that have reasonable effects for pain relief? Um, and I guess as a pursuant question for that, any concerns that you might have with regards to the quality of that evidence so that we potentially could make a firm recommendation or not? Yeah, this is a good question. Actually, I started this question um, uh, with my PhD. And um, based on our research, the published systematic review, we found that Boswellia, Serrat, um, pine bark extracts, and curcumin and MSM demonstrated large and clinical meaningful treatment effects for symptomatic relief in people with knee, hip, and 
pain osteoarthritis. However, the current quality of the evidence is low. As such, it is difficult to make a firm recommendation for the use of the supplements. In general, we advise people who desire to try these supplements, they do so for a short period of time, like four to six weeks, and then see if there are no obvious benefits. Superb. That's a really very helpful overview of a large part of your PhD, which you synthesized down into 30 seconds or less. So that's fantastic. Now, Andrew, um, obviously the decision-making in, in the context of whether a person takes a supplement ideally should be a, a shared decision. But what, what factors should a person who's considering taking a supplement consider before they do so? Yeah, I think, uh, David, your, your point's a good one. When we talk about complementary alternative medicines, and that's the broad area that supplements come into, it is a personal choice, and it does have to come from, I believe, a position where people feel informed. Uh, when we've looked at studies about where people get information from, you might think it's the internet or their doctor, or I even thought it might be their pharmacist, but most people get information uh, from friends and family. And of course, it's very important that you weigh up information in a, in a balanced way. Could this medicine help me? What are the potential harmful effects? Uh, and how will I know if it's working? Also, can I afford it? So they're very important things. Um, if you believe all the marketing that's put out there, uh, every medicine will work for you and it's just at the right price, but it turns out, the unfortunately, the other end of the spectrum might be more correct. Not every medicine works. Uh, and it's likely to be more expensive than you know you can can afford. I think Xiao's point there is a really good one. Uh, being fully informed and asking uh, people about a medicine, uh, looking up and doing your own research, and then asking your pharmacist or your doctor uh, about uh, the treatment you're thinking about, and then thinking about a trial for a short period of time. And I think you know a month or two months is not a bad way to think about uh, deciding whether you feel the medicine is helping your condition or perhaps has led to a change in you that might be harmful and you'd like to you know, stop. Yeah, and so if a person were to do that, Andrew, and to do a trial, what types of expectations might they consider that would be worthy of continuing? And what are some common misconceptions that might get pervaded out there through uh, marketing and, and inappropriate advertising? You know, I think, David, you hit on a, a very good point where people do have a, a health condition that's with them for a long time and that a type of health condition that gets better over, you know, at different times and might flare up or, or be bad at different times. There's a bit of a tendency to think that anything we've done or even subtle changes in things like diet, behavior, or even something we take might be responsible for that improvement uh, in our health and well-being. I think the, the most important thing when a person is uh, trying a supplement and is to uh, have a realistic expectation about how it might help them. Uh, remember, this won't be a cure. This might be something that is able to improve their ability to cope uh, with that condition, hopefully reduce some pain, maybe improve function. Um, the most important thing you could do is, is to look out for, over that period of time of one to two months trial, to decide, and, and I suppose be very mindful, that's what I'm trying to say, about how it's improving your pain management, but also if there are new symptoms that have appeared that um, you haven't seen before. I think that's important to appreciate. The idea of cost is important as well. We know that quality can vary enormously between these supplements, uh, and a, a cheap and cheerful supplement might actually be a lower quality supplement 
uh, than one that might be um, a bit more expensive. Now this is a bit of a vexed area because um, uh, the quality and safety of supplements is regulated by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. That's the regulator that I mentioned. There's not always direct evidence that they provide strong clinical benefit. By that I mean improving uh, your pain control or your function. So this is a, about going into uh, the use of or trialing uh, a supplement like this with an open mind and a very critical mind to think, well, I'm going to try this for a certain period of time and then think objectively, did it help me? I think that's a very way, a good way to enter into it. It also means that you don't keep taking a medicine that's not working for you and over time paying a lot of money for it because many of most of these medicines are not covered by the usual subsidized access schemes like the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. Very thoughtful advice and hopefully people uh, gain a lot of insight from that. Now, Shao, this is a fascinating area as a doctor where people come along and every second day I hear about something else that someone's taking for their arthritis that I've never heard of. But what are some of the more interesting concoctions that you've heard of that patients with osteoarthritis might use? Yeah, I think there are a number of uh, folk remedies or natural methods showing promising effect. Actually, we, we don't normally use uh, in our clinical practice, uh, including uh, leech therapy. And I just did some research, and six years ago, there is a um, review. So they uh, investigated the effect of leech therapy for osteoarthritis, which confirmed their effect on improving knee pain. Just for the listeners out there, essentially what that typically means is a person might get some medicinal leeches um, and put that in various places around their knee. There are countries around the world, particularly in Eastern Europe, that continue to practice this way on a regular basis. We know that leeches actually uh, do have anticoagulant uh, and uh, a local anesthetic, you know, in there uh, as part of the, the way a leech attaches itself to you to maintain blood flow and you don't feel it. So it's kind of a rationale I can see. Of course, a fairly imperfect one because it's a living organism that you're putting on your knee. And I'm sure there's plenty of listeners that are going, did they say leeches? Uh, we did, we did say leeches, but as, as, as Andrew is saying, there is a pretty good biologic rationale as to why yeah, it would work as well. What, what else have you got there, Shao? Um, I think the other interesting therapy is BWNAM, which was tested um, in a clinical trial and suggesting significant improvement on people's knee pain. Yeah, and so for those of you who are out there who are allergic to bee stings, honey bee venom might not necessarily be something that you want to trial, but there is at least one trial out there that suggests honey bees and their venom specifically might be helpful. What else? The other one, I think, is castor oil, also demonstrated symptomatic improvement in one trial. However, other regarding snake oil or lubricant WD-40, uh, I didn't find any uh, research evidence to support their use. Yeah, I guess the point, the point there is that there are a lot of different remedies that are tried for, uh, for osteoarthritis. The evidence is controversial and very thin, and we're not here advocating for castor oil, snake oil, or what commonly people use as WD-40 or, or some grease that they might rub over their joint to, to stimulate it. Andrew? So I think what I've heard of each of these being used, and, and uh, I mentioned before that uh, people often get information about medicines from friends and relatives. And uh, I reckon there'd be a few people listening who may have met someone who said, I use 
you know, one of these, including WD-40 on my knee and it seems to work. It stops all the, you know, squeaks and in my bed, in my chair, including my knee. Interestingly, there is a bit of a basis for bee stings and things that you apply topically on your knee. And, you know, what we know is happening there when you apply it to a joint and rub it on is that you warm up the area. We know that uh, the increase in blood flow there as you rub it and warm up the joint does lead to some pain relief. And of course, that's how things like uh, oil of wintergreen or methyl salicylate liniment works in exactly the same way by warming up the joint. Uh, So there is some, you know, rationale for it. But of course, the safety of bee stings of castor oil, snake oil, I'm not even sure what that is, uh, but WD-40, they're not meant to be applied on the skin. So this, David, going back to the comment you raised there before about the possible potential for harm, we need to be very careful about these things. If they're not designed for human use, then we shouldn't be using them. Yeah, and I'm not suggesting this is going to be as bad as uh, pouring disinfectant down into your lungs <laughs> or pouring, pouring sunlight down into your lungs, but it's pr- probably not necessarily uh, that distinct. Now, Shao, you've done a lot of work in this space. Are there any patient-friendly resources that you might like to share that could shed further light on this topic for the audience? Yes, uh, we have an uh, info graphic for our review, systematic review, the main findings. So we concluded our main findings in an infographic, uh, which is easier for um, people to understand the main results. I think patients can get access to um, the infographic via IBGR website. Yeah, and we'll, um, we'll also include uh, that in the, in the show notes. Now, Obviously, there are lots of areas. What, what else did I forget to ask, Andrew? No, I was just going to say that there are some very good resources for consumers through Arthritis Australia, I thought. Some of their resources, particularly around supplements, is really useful and providing a bit of balance there. There's another group called NPS Medicine Wise. Uh, they're a group that are independent of manufacturers, so they're, they're unbiased. They provide a very good balanced assessment of many commonly used medicines. Uh, so when people are trying to, as we mentioned before, weigh up what might be suitable for them and how best to take it, it's great to go to a source that's helpful. I think Shao's research is brilliant and that it should be looked at, but there's a few other organizations, Arthritis Australia and also NPS Medicine Wise as well. Superb. Now, I'm just gonna move away a little bit from supplements and talk more broadly about what, uh, what both of you do, but Andrew, What's the biggest challenge you have in your role right now and how are you going to overcome that? Obviously, uh, listeners would know we've just gone through a, uh, a really amazing time related to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and of course, what uh, is really challenging about that is that it's meant that we've had to change what we do here at the university. And of course, many of my colleagues in clinical practice have had to do in the way they provide the care for the patients they look after. You know, as a teacher and a researcher, this has meant that we've had to be really innovative and creative in the way we deliver what we do. We've also seen very similar things in clinical practice in in the way that uh, practitioners of all types have really started to shape healthcare. So I think uh, the challenges that we've just been through in the first part of 2020 will change us in the way we uh, educate, in the way we do research, in the way that we care for people. I suppose the most important thing uh, it's demonstrated to me is the need for creativity and uh, resilience in in what we do, both as teachers, researchers, and as clinicians. And obviously, you know, it's it's hard sometimes to look at 
the coronavirus in a very positive light, but I would have thought some of those changes that you've spoken about, both in terms of the resilience, the creativity, uh, but also the access to online resources may actually be helpful long-term. Do you think they'll last beyond the virus? Oh, I do, actually. I, I, I'm hoping that this has been a transformational uh, type of step change in many areas. So in very quick time, organisations have moved a lot of their information provision and uh, even, you would know, David, seminars and meetings all online. And it, it's led to, I think, a lot of efficiencies and a strong focus on quality information, but quality interactions uh, via platforms like this. And I think that is a, that's a really good development. Yeah, no, I, I think it's uh, in many ways, uh, there are a lot of positive developments that have come from it. Yeah. Now, Shao, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? So firstly, I think the outbreak of the coronavirus is just a start, as you said, on some of the um, what we do, what we do now will last in future. If I could do anything to improve, I would prom promote e-consultation, so um, patients can consult a clinician uh, online over the internet. They don't need to uh, drive to hospital waiting for hours to see a doctor. Um, secondly, I would provide updated information to commu community in a quicker and easier way. Like we can put our research results on our website or um, through podcast of what we are doing. And thirdly, I would like to link practice and community more efficiently uh, using modern technology like um, through social media or email. Really good thoughts. And um, as, as you suggest, hopefully this uh, is potentially stimulated by the virus, but lasts well beyond uh, the virus itself. Now, Andrew, you're a good storyteller. Do you have any favorite stories from your work life? I, I do, actually. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, uh, so this is, a, I suppose, a, a life story that influences my work about that. I'm uh, lucky enough to be the father of twins, two boys, and uh, it's a while ago now when they were quite young, we went to visit a friend who was a quadriplegic and uh, this chap was involved in a, an accident as a young bloke, uh, paralyzed from the neck down. And I'd known him for quite some time, uh, got quite a good connection and we always talk about sport when we're there. And, uh, but of course, it's very confronting to meet a person, I, I suppose in a very challenging situation in life as I look at him uh, when I visit. But interestingly, I took my two young boys to go and visit and uh, we uh, were there for probably about half an hour and uh, we caught up, talked about sport, the rugby league for that week. My young boys were running around, checking things out. And as we walked out the door, we said goodbye. I said to my two lads, uh, what'd, you make of, uh, what'd you make of our visit? And they said, oh, I couldn't believe it. They were really, you know, I thought they were really upset, to be honest. And they said, uh, he had a dog. I said, what? He said, you know, he, he had a dog. And it was interesting in that moment, I realised that when I visited my friend, I saw what he didn't have, but my two boys taught me they saw exactly what he had and what he could do. I think it's a good lesson for when I, the different groups of people I get to work with, whether it's patients, whether it's people in trials, researchers, uh, or even uh, high-end uh, professors like you, David, it's about meeting people where they are and seeing what they can do, not being limited by you know, what they, what, seeing what they can't do. So it was about a positive frame. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, it's good good to have a very optimistic perspective. And oftentimes, as you say, we come in with very blinkered perspectives and uh, think about the worst of that scenario. Xiao, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it say and why? My message on the billboard would be the same as what you told your patients. Stay active, be strong and keep your weight down. I, I totally agree uh, because I think it is the key to keep healthy. We talk medication beyond that. And just for everybody who's listening, I didn't necessarily brainwash her from a very early age. It was just more recently. But um, <laughs> Andrew, in closing, is there one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give there for people with osteoarthritis? I think many of the mes- messages have really come out there, David, are that you know, the things we can do other than using medicines, such as staying active, controlling weight, maintaining good diet, are very important. What I'd add to that, medicines do have a role and using them judiciously and appropriately is important. But probably the big headline would be, uh, the best advocate for you is you. So your healthcare is most important to you and while we as clinicians want to support you in that, it's very important that you find a team uh, of GP, of physio and pharmacist to work with uh, and they become part of your team uh, and you work together to improve and maintain your health and well-being. So I think that idea of being an advocate for your own health, none of us are surprised when people are advocates for their own health. They're things that you know, we really support. So being informed is incredible information. And I suppose knowing what to do and when to do it is a critical part of how your team will help you. Sagely advice and a fantastic way to, uh, to wrap this up. Thank you so much both for the insights, wisdom and thoughts. It's great to spend some time with you and thank you for sharing that time with us. Thanks, David. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of Joint Action. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong and stay active. And thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.